Hi, and welcome to the 40 and Infertile podcast. I'm your host, Victoria, at 40 and Infertile on Instagram. I'm a fellow IVF patient, and this is where I share with you my fertility journey in my late 30s and 40s, while also providing you information to minimize your fertility struggles later in life. Hi guys, welcome to another episode. This is episode 26 and it's another warrior story. Today our focus is going to be on the emotional ride of infertility, uh, particularly for us over 40. Um, And we also do a little brief discussion about seeking um, some treatment outside the US. Um, Today we're going to be talking to Emily. She's an infertile therapist in therapy. And um, we're going to be talking to her and her unique viewpoint and experience in going through infertility as a therapist. I think it's important to point out that even though she has the skills and the tools and the training to help others who are struggling and grieving, she also struggled. And I think that this speaks volumes to the magnitude of the pain that we go through when we're going through infertility. So if you're struggling, you're not odd because it seems like everyone is doing okay and you're not. It's not odd at all. And it may only seem that way because we're all putting on a show for everybody else around us. We don't all have it together. We all are having a rough time at some point or another. And it may not be the same thing for you as it is for someone else. For instance, someone else might have a harder time during retrievals while someone else may be having a harder time with um, transfers or maybe some people are having harder times with just the wait, just the waiting and maybe even the downtime. So um, the thing is, this is hard and um, I don't want you to feel like you're the only one going through this because it seems like people are doing okay. Um, But the reality is we don't talk about it. And one of the reasons why I'm doing this is because I really do want us to talk about this. And I want us to bring up all the difficult things that come up, all the different things we feel so that you don't feel like it's unusual for you to have these feelings. I mean, this is really, really hard. So, you know, I I think it's important that um, we have that conversation. And I really wanted to have someone like Emily on because she has the training. I mean, you know, the rest of us don't have formal training in how to deal with some of these things. And she does, and she still had a hard time. So please give yourself some grace. Please don't be so hard on yourself. Um, it is a really hard thing to go to kind of deal through, deal with and go through. So um, just be a little easy on yourself. Um, but I also want to say, and this is very important as well, is that if you really, really, really are having a hard time, um, make sure you get some help. Um, there are a lot of amazing resources out there. Um, but if you are in need of some immediate attention, obviously dial 911 or um, dialing 988, which is the new um, number to reach the suicide prevention hotline. So I encourage you to uh, throughout the whole infertility process, even if you think you're doing well, at minimum check in maybe once a month or something with someone. Because you know, after several cycles, these things add up really quick. And 
those feelings can kind of overwhelm you and can kind of take you by surprise. I mean, I think some of us, you'll hear on some of these warrior stories after, you know, first few cycles, we're all doing okay. And then all of a sudden, you know, once we get to five or more or something like that, and sometimes even sooner than that, all of a sudden, it just like kind of hits us. So, um, you know, I encourage everyone who's going through this, whether or not you're going through IVF, even if it's IUI, or maybe even if you've been trying um, with time to intercourse for a period of time and finding that you're having a hard time, I, I think it's important that, um, you know, you have some support that's, you know, outside of your family members, outside of your friends, because I don't know that they always understand what that is like if they haven't been through it. I know I don't often talk to my friends about it. I'm starting to do it more only because I want to take the stigma away from going through infertility. I mean, one in eight is a lot, you know, um, and one in eight is a lot, but one in eight people aren't talking about it. <laughs> I, I don't feel like they are. So, um, you know, I'm trying to talk about it more with my friends. I'm trying to talk about it more and, you know, things they should say or shouldn't say or, you know, things to kind of be more mindful of, but it's still really uncomfortable for me. Like, I don't like to do it because I kind of want to be in my bubble and then talk to, you know, all my IVF people about it um, because it's more comfortable. It's safe, I feel like, and I feel like there's no judgment. Whereas, you know, outside of this IVF community or this infertility community, I kind of have to explain things and I have to kind of, mm, I don't know if I want to say validate my feelings, but, you know, I, I kind of am uncertain how um, sometimes some of my thoughts or feelings will be perceived. So, you know, I, it's easier for me to talk to my IVF people, my infertility people, because they get it and I don't have to explain anything. Um, but, you know, I, I encourage you either way to find some support outside, either someone who's an infertility coach or either someone who's um, a therapist. I think that the most benefit comes from working with someone who has intimate knowledge of the infertility process and space. So whether or not they've done it themselves or just have worked with a large patient population who's gone through all of this, I think that is so um, important because I do have um, a therapist that um, does, is, doesn't have, um, I would say, like intimate knowledge of what IVF or infertility is like. And I um, sometimes have to spend time explaining a certain procedure or explaining like, you know, what the process is like. And I'm, I, I mean, I'm already spending so much money on infertility treatment. I feel like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna spend another 10 minutes explaining this. So um, my recommendation would be to try and find someone who is specialized in this. And Emily talks about where you can find someone and, and some of her suggestions. But um, hopefully you guys find this episode helpful and you guys know the drill. If you love this episode or found value in it, I would love for you to leave a five-star review on whichever platform you're listening on. Um, I just want to get this information to as many people as possible who are struggling with infertility um, so that maybe their paths won't be as heartbreaking or as difficult as they have been for some of us. So um, hopefully you find this helpful. Um, as you know, you can always DM for suggestions, if you have any for upcoming episodes. Um, and I'll also leave some additional resources. Okay, let's chat with Emily.
Just a quick reminder, I am not a physician and the information provided today is for educational and informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice. So make sure that you consult with your own fertility doctor before choosing any medical therapies that may affect your fertility. Unfortunately, every person's situation is unique and it is vital that you discuss your own personal situation with your fertility doctor to decide what is the best course of action for you. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode. Today we have another warrior story, and today we have Emily with uh, Infertile Therapist in Therapy. So thank you so much for joining us today, Emily. Thank you so much for having me. This is awesome to be here, so thank you. <laughs> yes, I'm so excited. I think you have a very unique story to tell. Um, not only uh, did you kind of start your journey in your late 30s um, and kind of into your early 40s, but I think there are a few other things that we can talk about, particularly that you have a background uh, in therapy. And I think it's important for us to kind of discuss some of the emotional impacts of this journey um, for all of us. I think particularly at 40, um, I think we have a unique experience as well. So I kind of want to share your journey and kind of how you've dealt with that, even with this really strong background as a therapist. So um, thank you for taking the time to be here. And thank you for being so open to sharing your story with us. Yeah, um, of course. Thank you. So I will um, start with a little background. Um, so I, I'm 43. And my husband and I have been on this infertility journey for almost five years. Um, I got married when I was 37, um, and well, 37 and a half actually. Mm -hmm. And, um, I always wanted to be married and have, um, a family. So that was always kind of a goal of mine. I always thought I'd get married earlier than 37 mm -hmm. <laughs> too. Mm -hmm. So we know life doesn't happen the way we want it to all the time. Um, so got married at 37 and a half. Um, and my husband was two years younger than me. So he's about 35 and a half. And, um, yeah, so we, so we started trying for our family about, um, probably like five months, about five months after we got married. So I, um, and part of that was that I wanted to get study and do all my licensure, get licensed as an LCSW, which I was able to do, which is kind of, to prep for that. It's kind of a full-time job on top of my full-time job. Um, and I'm so happy I did that before infertility hit us because as we both know, infertility is absolutely a full-time job. So um, I'm grateful I got my licensure done. And what that means is that I could start a private practice, be a therapist, um, do, you know, one-on-one -on -one group couples therapy. But what I've been doing is I haven't started that yet. Um, but what I have been doing is working for host different hospice agencies, um, and doing kind of case management and grief work with families, um, which has also definitely prepared me for infertility because there's so much grief that comes with infertility. Um, so, so my plan is when I'm completely done with my infertility journey, so to speak, to kind of start a private practice geared towards women going through infertility and get life or get certified as a coach so I can help, um, women outside of California remotely. So that's kind of the, the goal there. Um, and I started 
I kind of started blogging on Instagram. I was following a bunch of infertility Facebook groups and I kind of fell upon some infertility Instagram um, accounts. And um, I, I, I think the inspiration was I really didn't want to document all of this. Um, it felt really vulnerable. Like initially, I didn't really want to do that. It felt like I was in like emotional stirrups, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> or in physical yeah, stirrups. Totally. Time with the yeah. fertility process. And I was like, I don't know if I want to put it all out there. Um, but I remember like distinctly like staying, this was after, I don't even know which loss it was. Um, but staying up really late and reading a fellow warrior's account and just like bawling and crying over her experiences and feeling like, Oh my gosh, I, someone else gets it and knows how I feel. And so I kind of just was like, you know, like writing was, uh, has always been, a way for me to release emotions and very cathartic for me. So I thought I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna write everything I've been through mainly. And this is probably just coming from the social work person I am like to help people like I wanted people to not repeat any of the mistakes I made. I wanted to expedite people's process and journey in a, in a way that mine hadn't been. I wanted them to learn from my mistakes, like help people educate them in the way that I hadn't been or had to learn, you know, just try to help and expedite things for people more so. So, um, and also I really felt like I wanted people to not feel alone. And, and I also just felt like as a therapist, like, so to speak, I just, if I was struggling and having such a hard time, like, that, you know, and I already had all these tools and things I had studied and learned. And it kind of goes out the window when you're going through it and when you're in the thick of it. So I just didn't, I wanted people to feel like, well, okay, if she's going through this, I can, it's totally validated that I'm going through this and we're all human and um, we all have these emotions. And so when I blogged everything and it kind of just started over a year ago, it wasn't, it was pretty far into my journey, so to speak. Um, but I, I'm not writing it as like a professional, like I'm very raw and very me. And I'm showing all of my emotions, the good, the bad and the ugly. And, and also just as a way to say, like, really, there aren't really ugly emotions, like these are all really normal emotions. And if you weren't having heightened emotions through one of the hardest things that most of us will go through, then I would be worried about you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. Because this is pretty severe and grueling. So that's just kind of a background on um, why I kind of posted everything I did and mm -hmm. really wanted to show like, you know, mm -hmm. tell people about our journey. So mm -hmm. um, so you started, then, yeah. yeah, you started after immediately after you got married, you're like, let's do it. Let's have children. And you started yeah. trying. Uh, so let me back up before you even did that did because at the time you said you were 36. Right? 37. 37. I, yeah, 37 and Seven. a half when I got okay. married. Yeah. So like 37 and a half. Had you prior to that had anyone ever talked to you about your fertility? Like did any of your doctors say, hey, you know, you're 35 now, just so you know, there's this kind of like, decline in your fertility and once you hit 40 there's like a really steep de decline did anybody ever have that conversation with you no and it's a good question I think I might even have a I feel like I have a similar story maybe it was you or someone you had on 
but um, or maybe it's a similar story to what we're we've all gone yeah. through. But, um, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Like just from my own very simple, simple research. Like you know, I like I said, I, it was always important to me to one day have kids, and so I knew enough to know like yeah, my fertility is going to decline with age. I did not know like all the, like it definitely takes a deep dive after age 35. Like no one sat me down, no medical professional. I took it upon myself to ask my OB. I was like, uh, like what, is there anything I should be looking out for or tests Mm -hmm. or anything? Because at 34, I had no prospects. Like, (laughs) you know, like, and I was like, okay, I'm getting in my mid thirties. And, um, I have a good like family friend. She's like a family member and she works, she's out of state and she is a nurse and she works for, um, or one of her really good friends was an RE, a reproductive endocrinologist, infertility doctor, RE. Um, and she kind of found out, she's like, this is, you take an AMH test. It's a simple blood test that can be indicate your, um, egg reserve. Right. So, so she kind of gave me that information. I was like, Oh, great. I'll do it. And, um, she had him look at the results and he said, you're normal. You're good. You're normal. There was nothing. And this is an RE Mm -hmm. she asked Mm -hmm. and there Mm -hmm. was nothing else. He wasn't like, Oh, she's 34 on the brink of 35. Like she should really consider, um, fertility, fertility preservation and egg freezing. So there was not, there was no feedback about that. It was just like, you're normal and you're good. So Mm -hmm. in my mind, I was like, I'm normal and I'm good. Like yeah. I have a, I felt like I had a few other couple more years before I had mm-hmm. to readdress this. Mm-hmm. So, um, of course now looking back, I'm just so sad and disappointed that that was an offer to me. And just generally like that is just, it's just, we're here for a lack of education mm-hmm. um, around this topic. Mm-hmm. And I think we would have all made different decisions had we oh, yeah. known what we know now, you know? So, mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so I think by the time I was like 37 and a half, I was like, okay, I'm married. Like I, I should be in pretty good shape. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I kind of wasn't super worried about it. Um, and then, so the first, that kind of first year we tried on our own, well, we did like ovulation predictor mm-hmm. tests. Right. And then we moved on after like three months. Um, we moved on because I did talk to the OB and they were like, well, after six months, because of your age, yeah, then you move on to like infertility treatments if nothing's mm-hmm. happening. And so I think we kind of moved on to Clomid at like three or four months of trying. And then um, we moved on to, we did two IUIs that failed and we were starting our third IUI, but I got a cyst because no one had told me that you're not supposed to be on Clomid apparently for eight months and that you can easily build a cyst. Like you're supposed to take breaks from it. Was this all with your OBGYN that you did all this or did she send you to a fertility doctor? Um, it was with it's yeah, it started with an, my OBGYN, um, who was great. I thought she was a, you know, fairly thorough like she had mm-hmm. had all my labs done and I got tested for MTHFR oh wow okay which is you know usually you don't hear about till way later in your infertility journey so I'm really lucky that I got tested for that and I um um 
I was positive for that. I had the lesser, I think I had the, the one with just the one variant. My husband had the two. But anyway, that was good, good knowledge to have and something, you know, I think. Can you explain that really quick? Can you explain what that is? Yeah, um, MTHFR, I don't even have up the, it's a very long title. (laughs) I don't have up, I can look it up here on my computer. But um, basically your body doesn't break down um, folic acid. And I know Mm -hmm. I'm not explaining this well, but um, which can basically it can it can be problematic if you have a higher propensity toward miscarriage mm-hmm. um a lot of times it can there can be a little more blood clotting so um a lot of times you can you the doctor might say go on aspirin before a transfer or if you're trying to get pregnant um or even blood thinners so like i said i had um i had the lesser of the mm-hmm of the two. Mm-hmm. So it was more of like a mild, moderate concern, but still mm-hmm. something that I was glad to know mm-hmm. at the beginning. So mm-hmm. I'm sure you'll get to like other suggestions I have, but to start, that's, that's one. I think that's an easy blood test that every, mm-hmm. everyone should get on this mm-hmm. process because mm-hmm. you don't want, you don't want any barriers mm-hmm. other than what you're going through. Mm-hmm. So you got so you got the testing done. Um, so after trying for three to four months, you moved on to medicated IUIs. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Well, Medicate and then the medicated IUIs with your GYN, or were you at this point at your first fertility doctor? Yeah. So they did recommend um, an RE, and I I did I did do I did one IUI through my OB, and then. Um, one with the RE um, and that's when they found this I would have gone on to do two with the RE and they found the cyst so I stopped and at that point I had a good friend that had already done an egg retrieval out of state and she was kind of I was lucky to have her because she really walked me through like IVF and what it looked like and her process so I consulted with her doctor who was out of state very affordable because we have no insurance coverage um and I got on that waiting list and his suggestion was like, I wouldn't waste time on any more IUIs. Um, Cause how old were you at this point? I was, um, I was about 39. Yeah. I think I just turned 39. And what was your AMH? My AMH was, so my AMH is pretty good for my age. Um, it's about at, at that time it was about 2.6. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Yeah. FSH 6.54. Oh, okay. So that was, that was pretty good for my age, I'll say. But of course, you know, and that's the thing too, going back to like being young and getting an AMH test, like if your egg reserve is good, that's great, but that's only part of the problem. Like if you're in your mid to late thirties, you have to, you're countering egg quality issues more than likely. And obviously there's no real test for that except an assumption with your age. And then if you send your embryos out to be PGT tested. So I think like, obviously if your AMH was really low, you would know like, Hey, okay, I I should take more action with my fertility, but it's also misleading when your AMH is okay because you think, Oh, I have a few years and then you're screwed. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. And like, 
Yeah, a lot of the women that I've talked to have had higher AMHs. That's kind of been the case where, not that they've been dismissed, but it's been a, I think, something that has been comforting. It's like, oh, it's high, you're good. As opposed mm-hmm. to, it's high, yes, however, you are however old. Part two of the equation is your egg quality. We should still consider, you know, looking at ways that we can make sure that your egg quality is there. Even if you have the quantity, you may not have the quality. So I think that's like an important distinction to make that quantity and quality are two very different variables. Absolutely. And it just just the stats of age, right? Because Mm -hmm. you really don't know what you have until you send out. But just saying like, here's the stats, here's, here's how steep this decline goes Mm -hmm. down, you know, Mm -hmm. after age 35 and giving you the option Mm -hmm. to just have the knowledge and then do with it what you want. Like, like say, Hey, the odds are kind of getting stacked against me. So I am going to look into egg freezing or, you know, yeah, I just think that's so important, which I just think we're missing a lot with some of our doctors. Yeah. So you met this guy, this, the, your friends, RE, right? Was it your friends, RE? Yeah. Yeah. I never even met him because they were out of state, but it was kind of mm-hmm. like, she sent him my numbers and he looked at them and it was all through her. So she's like, you're good. You're good. <laughs> so, so what happened uh, out of state? So did you end up, did you end up doing IVF with him? Because did he say like, hey, you should really consider... Oh, sorry. You're talking about. Yeah. Sorry. You're talking. Yeah. Your first um, cycle. Arizona. Arizona. Okay. Um, Arizona. Okay. (laughs) Sorry. Arizona number one. (laughs) Yes. So Arizona. Yeah. So this is an RE that I consulted. My husband and I consulted over the phone. And so he said, um, I mean, I think because of my age. Yeah. He was like, I would just stop wasting your time on these IUIs. And also my husband, um, our initial problem, right, was was sperm. So mor- motility mm. and morphology, the numbers okay. weren't so great, which I also wish someone had told me at the time, like, you know, this is a f- this is things that can be fixed with men. I mean, not so much morphology, but motility like this is, you know, with the right supplementation, the right hormones like this is a way easier fix than with women who have mm-hmm. aging eggs, sadly. Mm-hmm. Um so that's something also that I wish I had known. So he basically, because of that, he said, I would jump to IVF. Um, I was 39 at the time. So it made sense. Um, and so, so we did that. And, um, you know, I think I was on a little bit of a wait list. So I did three rounds of IVF, three egg retrievals, um, with this clinic in Arizona. So, um, although I was 39, I think they were each a couple months apart. Um, let me back up for a second. The, the first IVF round, and you may have just gotten about to say this, but what were your expectations for the first IVF round? Like what, what did you think was going to happen? Cause you had that friend that had at least been through it and kind of talked to you about it. So what kind of information did she tell you? Yeah. And I think she trying to remember, I think her, yeah, her first round, she got a couple of normal embryos. I think she was a year younger than me. Um, So my expectation was kind of what a lot of us have was that this will be one and done. Um, An egg retrieval equates to a baby. And 
this will be one and done. And um, this time next year, I'll be holding my little baby and in being bliss. <laughs> so, I, yeah, so I, I just, I wasn't educated on, I didn't have appropriate expectations and I wasn't educated around how to have those or, you know, so, so when I found out, of course I made a lot of eggs because of my high AMH. So we actually had, um, four get sent out. I think I had 18. I don't know all the, the rates, but essentially we made four made it to be sent out, um, to be PGT tested. And that was another decision. I kind of just went by what my friend said, and I'm still glad that I did. Um, but it was kind of like that information was given to me, like, you know, you have a higher, um, chance of chromosomally abnormal embryos. And it was suggested to get those tested, which is a personal decision, but that's what we decided to do. So all four of our embryos came back abnormal and I was like devastated. Um, because that hadn't been my friend's case. And again, in my mind, I was like, like, you, you do IVF, and you get pregnant from that, you know, so I was devastated. And I kind of just thought, is this the end for us? And, um, and that RE, we consulted afterwards. And, you know, he was, he wasn't super encouraging because of my age. And he said, you know, I would try another round. Here's a few things you can try. And then if that doesn't work, then I'd move on to egg donors, um, which felt startling to me because I'm like, man, this is just, you know, I kind of just started this process. Um, did you, what kind of things did he recommend for you? Like, what was he saying you should try? So he suggested the, how oh, is it a, the, the sperm chip, the kind of zygote. Oh, uh-huh. The uh-huh. kind of weeds out the best. The zymot, sperm. uh-huh. Yes, zymot. Um, and then he also recommended human growth hormone or otherwise HGH, otherwise known as omnitrope. Um, and again, like, I'm just going to put in my tidbits as we go along. But like, if you're starting on this process, I would definitely say to your RE, like, please give me every single option that is a for like every single option I have to make this the most successful, no matter what the expense, because then you at least are, again, you're educated to move forward. And so I wish he said, yeah, I mean, here I am 39 and nothing against him, but you know, he was like, yeah, like with your age, you know, the HGH could help with your egg quality. And I wish I had known that before, even the first egg retrieval. <laughs> and I wish I had known about the sperm chip, you know, like these are things that, you know, add a couple that, you know, maybe the omnitrope is another thousand and the chip is another couple hundred. And I'm like, in the grand scheme of things, I'm already spending close to 10 grand. And if this is going to up my chances to not spend another 10 grand, why would I not go for it? Or why would you not give me the option? So that was really frustrating. And I wish I had known about that earlier. Um, and so for that next round, I did do the omnitrope and I did, we did do the chip and we had five, um, five embryos make it to be sent out to be tested. And one came back normal of the five. So that felt like a triumph. And I, I mean, for me, it at least felt like 
okay, we have hope, right? Like, like we're on the track. And, and we had also heard, he'd also told us like, which I'm grateful for. And I'm sure we asked is, you know, we wanted to have two children. That was our goal, at least two children. I mean, I'd always wanted four and every year I was like, it looks like it's going to be three. looks like it might be two, you know, like, so we wanted, um, we wanted at least two kids. And so we were told that you would need at least two normal embryos to kind of guarantee that, or even two to three. And there are no guarantees. That's the other thing. There's just zero guarantees in this infertility world. So, um, so at this point we were like, we were just in banking mode because of my age and my egg quality issues. Um, it was kind of about like, let's just do egg retrievals as many as we need to do, which we didn't assume we never dreamed we would do five or could afford five. (laughs) So, um, and then, so then for the third egg retrieval with that clinic, um, we had, I think we had two go out for testing, um, and had zero come back. So zero normal. So now I'm like, here, we've done three egg retrievals. I need to bank four and I only have one. And it was kind of at that point where we're like, something's got to change because another thing I would recommend is if you're on the same exact protocol, doing the same things and you're getting the same outcome, you've got to switch a clinic, switch RE or ask your RE to switch things up. Like that is just wasted time, money, energy, So that would be a huge recommendation I would make to anyone on this path. Um, Did he talk to you about like the percentage of expected normal eggs at your age at the time? Like, did he ever have that conversation with you? um, No, not. No, not like. I mean, I'll later go on to say that I switched to Dr. Amy, um, the egg whisperer, who obviously like is a unicorn and I can't sing her praises enough. (laughs) She's yeah. So, um, but anyway, not to that degree. I think it was more like, I think it was more like, here's what you can expect. um, Here's what you can expect egg wise to get for your age. The fact that I was getting, and I was on a lot of gonal, with you know so that grows your eggs more so the fact that I was getting so many eggs it was more like wow look at this which was like me thinking of course the emotional roller coaster being like oh okay this is going to be a good outcome and never and then you know from 18 eggs getting four sent out and zero normal zero normal from 18 mature follicles you know or you know that it just so I think that was a little misleading I didn't get that information at the time. Like, um, I think I did actually, and maybe this is through research. I'm not sure. I don't think the doctor told me this, but I think in my own research, I did find out that about what, like whatever embryos make it to blast and get sent out for PGT testing, you can usually account for half of those coming back normal. But then I didn't know that that number even gets decreased with your age too. So yeah, so that was kind of more of my long way of answering your question. That was more my own research and, and lightly touched on with that RE. Yeah, because it's like at 40, I want to say it's something like 5 to 10% chance that you'll get a normal, which is like, 
one in 20 or one in 10 eggs, which is, yep. I mean, I mean, if you walked into it knowing, like having that expectation, then yeah. knowing that if you had 20 eggs and only one came back normal, you're like, okay, that's within the st- statistical expectations of my age. Yeah. You won't beat yourself up so much. You'll be like, hooray, this is great, you know? But yeah. like, I think... I don't know. I, I mean, honestly, I don't know how many people get that conversation that says like, hey, this is your age. This is the expectation. If we had one normal, that is like a like a huge, huge win. That is success. If we can get one normal out of yeah. like 20 eggs or whatever. And then you just, I think, won't feel so deep because at least for me, I had the same experience in my first IVF cycle. I had eight eggs retrieved. I was like, sweet. Eight eggs equals eight successful embryos which means we have eight to work with and then yeah and then like because my re was different my first one like didn't give me any any expectations didn't didn't tell me whether anything was good or bad i was just like hey is that good and he's like well for some yes for some no and i'm like okay well that is not helpful for me like yeah for me is that good or bad well i don't know it's hard to say like and i get it he didn't want to commit to anything because he didn't want me to i think i mean i don't know right i didn't he maybe didn't want me to feel really crummy about it if like you know it didn't work out he was trying to tamper my expectations so that sure you know but still it's super obnoxious because you're like okay am i supposed to be angry or am i supposed to be happy about this how am i supposed to feel (laughs) you know right yeah right yeah so cycle three uh for you was a bust right Mm Mhm. so what happened after cycle three i also want to say here that i had come upon the book which i actually recommend um it starts with an egg. I'm sure a lot of people have heard of it. Um, because I will also say there wasn't any emphasis on supplementation. Like I, Just from going on Facebook groups, I was like, what's this? What's this? Oh, I should be on supplements? Okay. Like, no, no education around that. Um, CoQ10 is proven to help with egg quality. It's really the only one that's proven. But still, there's so many supplements that so many people would say have helped, right? So... Um, and I asked him about it and he was in, you know what? I don't even think I asked him cause it was just a difficult office to communicate with. Um, I kind of just went out on my own and I did, um, DHEA on my own, which I don't, I wouldn't, I'm not saying anything wrong about DHEA. I actually think it can really help. I've heard amazing things about it, but it really needs to be monitored because I just went to town on that and my testosterone levels were all, all my levels were off and I didn't know I was just clueless I just saw it in the book and I think she mentions it in the book I think I just kind of was like in la la land I don't know but I was just I was just taking I was desperate I was taking everything I read I didn't have time to research every little thing um, I really wish I had looked into that more but I would just say I have no idea if that caused you know, that to be a bad cycle. Part of me thinks it didn't help. Um, cause you know, I went from three embryos, four to made it to blast five to made it blast to two. So, um, and my, like I said, my testosterone was all my levels were off. 
but I took a blood test, like by the time I'd been on the stuff for two months. So I just caution people to be really careful and to have a really awesome RE that's going to like really help you kind of monitor what you're on. So again, I have no idea if that's why that was a bust. Part of me thinks it's just the luck of the draw of the cohort of eggs you get every month. Um, I think there's a lot to be said about that. So, but I just did, I did want to just put that out there because I do wonder about that. Um, but anyway, so after, you know, two failed egg retrievals with that um, doctor and just feeling like there was, um, you know, there just wasn't individualized care. And he was um, a great doctor for like women 35 and younger because he had just kind of the, his set protocols. I really needed someone who was going to give me individualized care and look into like what was going on with me. So then, um, and, uh, and traveling out of state, it takes a toll to do these procedures. <laughs> like it's no joke. So that's another thing that it's got to be a really great clinic and lab and a great cost all those elements to make it worth it. Cause it's really stressful. Um, so we were living in Northern California at the time and we found Dr. Amy, we did a ton of research. Um, she was with a good lab. Lab makes a huge difference too with your embryos. We would come to find out. Um, and I just changed everything up. Honestly, I did acupuncture. I changed my diet. Like I did Mediterranean, no sugar, no white flour, all plant-based. Um, I would also like to caution people on that diet. It's actually, it's awesome. And I felt so healthy and good on it. But just be careful. <laughs> I, I did go to the ER with a kidney stone because um, I had I was eating spinach every day. Every day I had spinach in my eggs because I just kind of used to eating like kind of the same things because there wasn't a ton to eat. Um, so I just caution people to be careful and not it's a high oxalate um, diet. And spinach is one of the highest things in oxalate. Also almonds and dark chocolate, believe it or not. So just be very moderate, unlike I was, um, because I developed an oxalate kidney stone. Um, anyway, so that was that's another little side note there. But I will say, you know, I did feel otherwise. I think the diet is is good, and I felt great. And so, anyway, changed my diet for three months. Changed up some supplements. Definitely didn't do the DHEA um, for myself. That wasn't. I, I didn't trust myself to do that without being heavily monitored. Um, so new clinic, new doctor, we were with Dr. Amy and um, acupuncture and I did human growth hormone. Um, I did five times as much and I did not just do it the week of my STEM week. Um, and I think this was, you know, I think I kind of asked about this. Could this help with the development? Because they say you develop your eggs over a course of three months. Um, and I had an RE who was like, you know, I don't think it, it's going to hurt. I've seen good things about the more you take. So um, so I I was just like willing to do whatever it took <laughs> to like get things going. And so um, I will say that was... Um, an amazing egg retrieval. Again, it could have been all the things I did or, um, well, anyway, I, we had seven embryos sent out for PGT testing and three came back normal. Oh, that's great. Which is oh my like, gosh. Yeah. 
a miracle unheard of in, with someone with, you know, our issues and my, um, you know, my equality stuff. And That's how old were you like at that time? 40, were you 40? 40. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, and again, it could have been an awesome cohort. Like it, there's so many variables. That's what makes all this really complicated and you just do what you can do. Um, so at that point I had four normal embryos and we were like, okay, we're good to go. <laughs> we're going to transfer and we're going to have our two kids. I mean, still, obviously at that point I'd learned there were no guarantees, but I kind of felt like, yeah, we, we can, you know, we're over the hump. <laughs> we're over the hump. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. So, um, and we had moved, so we kind of waited a few months to get situated with moving, um, job stuff. We moved to Southern California to be near family. And um, we transferred February 2020. And that was... Did you come back to Northern California to transfer? Oh, no. Good question. So that was... um, So we had one normal in our Arizona clinic in the three normal in Northern California. So we decided to transfer that normal in the Arizona first. So did you go to Arizona? Or yes. did you? Oh, okay. Oops. Yeah. So we tra- we traveled to Arizona for that transfer. Um, and it didn't take. And then, um, a couple months later, we transferred one of our last three embryos. Uh, you know, and now we have three embryos in Northern California. So we transferred one of those, and that did not take. Um. So I was pretty devastated. I mean, and just, and I think Dr. Amy was like, okay, we need to look at things again because something's, something's off. Um, and I had had the um, HSG that makes sure that the, the um, yeah, your tubes are clear. I'd had that at the beginning of our infertility journey. So our OB had recommended that. And it said my tubes were clear. I'd had the um, SHG. I'd had those. Um, and also, also what was devastating about these transfers was that, well, just alone, it's devastating enough. But then also, like, we'd done the ERA. We'd done everything, everything in our power to make it successful. And um, the ERA, for those that don't know, is um, a biopsy of your uterus to basically know when the most effective time is to do an embryo transfer and when your embryo or your your lining is the most receptive so um so again that was I wanted to just add that in there so that was another reason Dr. Amy was like okay so there's obviously something going on here um thank goodness for her to look into it further um so I got a repeat HSG done um dye through my tubes to test those and it came back that one tube was clear and one was inconclusive. So it could have been like a tubal spasm. Um, and Dr. Amy said, you know, I would, those tests, and I wish someone had told me this too. So I would go in with this expectation. Those tests are 70% effective. They're seven, 70% accurate. I mean, so, um, so she said, you know, if you really want to get to the bottom of things, you you might want to do a laparoscopic surgery to see what's going on. Or maybe there's endometriosis, um, which usually isn't the tiny and endo isn't picked up 
like isn't you don't find out about it unless you do do a surgery, a laparoscopic surgery. So again, I'm like, well, we've come this far. <laughs> like, why would I not do this? You know, so we did it and it found both of my tubes were incredibly blocked and twisted. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. But the dye went through. Supposedly. For the, oh. And I like, I, um, you know, I, I, part of me wants to hesitate to even bring it up because I don't want to like scare people, but I also like, I don't, because this isn't the norm, right? Normally this test is accurate. But seven thirty percent of the time it's not, and in my case, took it twice within three years apart, and they were both inaccurate. Unless the first one was accurate, and this is another thing I learned, which might be good for me to put out here, is that, um, and I blogged about it, but I learned that with every procedure you do, there's a chance to get a silent infection. So if you do an HSG, if you do an ERA, if you do an um, SHG. The and what's the SHG? Oh, okay. That one, yeah, that is a saline one that, oh, okay. tests, that goes in your uterus to test for fibroids and um, uh, what's the other thing? Polyps. So there's a 1% chance that you would, like I said, you would get a silent infection and that could have caused damage to my tubes, um, which feels unlikely. But honestly, I've had, even having an egg retrieval, you could get a silent infection um, or an IUI. I think for an IUI, I could be wrong about that. No, I don't think for an IUI. But um, anyway, something to like ask your doctor and also to consider doing an antibiotic for every procedure just to eliminate that because well chances are that didn't happen but honestly I've had I've had seven like between SHGs and HSGs I've had seven in my infertility career thus mm -hmm. far mm -hmm. <laughs> so like that's a seven percent chance you know mm -hmm. what I mean like mm -hmm. so with all of that increased like there could have been a ten percent chance that that's what happened right mm -hmm. for HSG could have been correct mm -hmm. After that, that was one of the first things I had. And then after that, I had all these procedures and it could have been that I had got a silent infection after that. But more than likely, just based on those stats, it was probably the HCG was incorrect both times. So I don't know, but it was such a discrepancy that I was like, how do we go from one clear tube and the other tube is like iffy to... Uh, just a month or two or like two months later, I have the surgery and they're incredibly twisted and blocked and I had them both removed. The other thing about this. Did they, sorry, people, did they remove it oh. that same procedure, like that same day they yes. decided to, okay. Did you guys have that conversation ahead of time? Yes. Like, oh, okay. And Dr. Amy said, um, I had her talk to the OB because now I'm in Southern California. She's in Northern California uh, and my OB mm -hmm. is doing the surgery. Mm -hmm. This is the one thing that my insurance covered. The yeah. One. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, um, yeah, there, because it's Dr. Amy and she's so good and thorough. We had the conversation and what she explained to me and what I learned, which so many people don't know this. I didn't know this. And I think everyone should know this is that um, your tubes, matter, even if you're doing IVF, because um, if you have a tube blocked, both tubes blocked, or even one tube blocked, um, what happens is that you, 
secrete, like you have these secretions that go, go through the tubes. Um, and if they're, they kind of filter in the uterus, filter out. I'm probably not explaining this and like very medically, but basically in layman's terms, like if they don't, they usually filter back out through the tubes. And if they don't, if the tubes are blocked, they get stuck and they can build up. So if you implant an embryo in there, those secretions can cause that embryo not to implant and be like a barrier. Um, also, if you implant an embryo and you have a blocked tube, that embryo before it settles and implants can float into the tube and that tube can trap it because it's blocked. Um, or you get into ectopic pregnancy issues. So blocked tubes matter even if you're doing IVF. And I didn't know that. Um, so she's explained all that and she said, she said, if your tubes don't look perfect, I would have them removed because this is more than likely could, that would more likely be the issue you've been having. So they got removed. I woke up, I woke up to learning they were both removed. And honestly, like I was relieved to an extent because I'm like, okay, this is the issue, right? Um, but I will say in the meantime, after the failed transfer, just to back up a little, the second one, I was like, what is going on? So we had the HSG second one planned. And then I had also learned about autoimmune issues with repeat miscarriages. So I had was on a really helpful, informative Facebook group. I think they're called reproductive immunology. Um, And now back to our episode. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. We're just going to take a quick break, so don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. I mean, I can get that info to you later, but basically um, autoimmune issues can account for failed transfers or failed failed implantation or miscarriages going forward. So for me, I was like, we've come this far. Like I'm going to look under, I'll leave no stone unturned. <laughs> like, so I set up, um, it was a three month wait list for Alan beer, who's a reproductive immunologist. And there's about four really good ones in the country, four or five. And I learned about that in this Facebook group. Um, and you know, you're, you know, basically you're on a cellular level, this can cause these miscarriages and, and things like that. So I was just worried that was going on. So meanwhile, I had that going on the wait list, my HSG set up, um, found out that that was inconclusive. So then I had my surgery set up had the surgery, found out it was my tubes. Dr. Amy was pretty convinced I had my tube. It was my tubes. Meanwhile, I was doing a last ditch, prepping for a last ditch fifth egg retrieval, which we didn't think we would do. Definitely couldn't think, didn't think we'd afford, could afford and we couldn't, but we managed somehow. And, um, cause I just figured this is probably my last shot with my egg quality this last one and we definitely don't have money to do mm -hmm. it after this. Yeah. This is kind of it. Yeah. Um, so the day before my fifth egg retrieval, we finally had our consultation with Alan Beer. And in my mind, 
up to this point, it was my tubes. My tubes were the issue. So I expected this consult to be like, you're good. Thanks for getting, you know, all this blood work, but you're good to go. And what I learned from the consultation was that I did have some like elevated um, levels, um, my Tregs and my leukocytes, which are all, it's very complicated, but they're tied in with natural killer cells. Um, and if those are low, then it doesn't sustain a pregnancy. Um, so now I'm like, well, what is it? Is it the tubes? Is it this? And my issue was kind of more um, mild to moderate, mild to medium. But I also felt like, and my husband was kind of like not on board with the whole autoimmune thing. There's like controversy around it, but I had read enough to hear so many women with miscarriages start a, go see a reproductive endocrinologist or sorry, reproductive immunologist. So RI, not an RE, but an RI and have lucky results or like, you know, be able to get pregnant and sustain that. So I just was like, man, I don't, I kind of think it was my tubes, but now I'm accountable to this information and I only have two embryos left because also by that time, this fifth egg retrieval, I did, sorry, I know, I hope I'm not confusing everyone, but fifth egg retrieval, um, I did the same exact protocol, everything I'd done with the fourth egg retrieval with Dr. Amy, diet, acupuncture, supplements, Omnitrope, human growth hormone for three months. I did everything the same. I was a year and some change older and I only got three embryos sent out for PGT testing and they all came back abnormal. So then I was, so that's when I was like, okay, I really, that's it. We're, we can't do any more egg retrievals. I have no tubes, so I'm not going to get pregnant naturally. And I have two embryos left. I do have a mosaic, which is a very low level mosaic, which they don't think would ever take. So I guess I have at this point, I had 2.5. Yeah. <laughs> you know, however you want to look at that. Yeah. But there wasn't like a big recommendation to transfer that mosaic, but we do have a mosaic. Anyway, so. I'm just trying to paint the picture of the boat I'm in where it's like, okay, no more egg retrievals, no tubes. I have these two embryos. Um, before I transfer them, do I want to go down this autoimmune route um, when there's not like, you know, because it's considered women's health, there's not been a ton of research on this. You know, a lot of people aren't educated on it. And a lot of the treatments are not FDA approved because there's not a large enough population sample for them to really get it tested um, and get the funding for that. So, um, so I kind of, we, my, like I said, my husband was kind of like, I don't know, is this hogwash? Like, is, would they, uh, would they find something wrong with your autoimmune stuff no matter what? And for me, I was like, man, I have two chances left. Like, let's just go for, it. I don't want to have any regrets. I didn't want any regrets. So I don't recommend that route for everyone. Like you have to know your, lim your emotional limits and you don't need to, f I don't think like anyone should feel bad for stopping or being like, okay, I'm so exhausted. Cause it does weigh on your mental health. And I was exhausted and I was like, I can't open up this 500 page book and start on a whole new like, thing to research in this whole new animal you know, but we ended up doing it. And, um, and basically, um, 
there's a couple of treatments. Like I said, one's very expensive and it's basically like IV, IV infusions. It's called IVIG. Um, or there was a treatment called um, LIT, and I'm going to forget what that stands for, but that's basically out of state or out of the country. Like you have to either go to Mexico or Canada. And um, thankfully for us now in Southern California, like we're just like an hour from Tijuana where one of the clinics is. Um, but basically what they do is, um, they would take someone else's blood. doesn't have to be my husband's, just someone with that. That's not a family member to me and draw, um, I don't know how much blood I can't remember, but draw a certain amount of blood where they would then spin it into a centrifuge, spin out the white blood cells, inject them into my arms to hopefully raise my levels and my numbers and to, and also, like, I guess this is layman's terms, too, is to have this, have, you know, his white blood cells, like, so my body wouldn't fight off a foreign, the foreign entity of an embryo or sperm, you know, that kind oh, of thing. Oh, I see. Uh-huh. So, again, it's, I'm not explaining it really amazingly, but this is kind of the gist of it. And um, so you would do that. You'd have to wait three or four weeks, get retested again have the doctor look at your stuff, you know, your new levels through, um, through Ellen beer or whatever RI you went with. Um, and, and then kind of, we had to do that, I think three times, three or four times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Whose recommendation times. was to do it three or four times? Was it the Ellen beers clinic or is it the clinic you went to in Mexico? Um, Ellen beer clinic, because they're the ones that look at your, levels and then they're like okay oh good this treatment worked or it only raised it this much I'd recommend you doing another one um so we finally got to the point where our levels were good enough to transfer um and again we could have done this IVIG infusion but it's like three or four thousand dollars for one infusion treatment and they recommend doing a couple where doing LIT was like $600. <laughs> I mean, you waste a day for, I mean, we would, we're just grateful we found a local clinic. Like we know that that was like huge for us because, or else we would have had to travel to Nogales, Mexico, which is like eight hours away. So how did anyway, you find this clinic? Um, through this group, through the, the Facebook group. Yeah. And then I got on, it was a clinic in Tijuana. They're called Vita. So then I got on the Vita Facebook group. <laughs> I mean, just, and just asking questions and, um, reaching out and, and instant messaging people and asking. So it's just a lot of, um, time, energy and research, as as is and was everything having to do with infertility but um so we we transferred in um oh gosh the end of june and it took so i'm so i I don't even know if i started with this but i'm 43 and so we had our baby um two just over two months ago two and a half months ago Mm -hmm. wow so, um, so I wish I could say like, oh, it was the tubes or, oh, it was autoimmune stuff. Like, again, my gut is that more than likely it's for sure it's the tubes, but then I also don't know if, um, doing the autoimmune stuff just helps solidify and, 
keep that at bay and keep the pregnancy going. So, so that's kind of my story. Yeah. Well, and then let's kind of talk about emotionally, because there are a lot of ups and downs during this whole process for you. And mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think any of us handle it very well because I, I don't think the expectation is that we handle it very well. But, you know, as a trained therapist, I'd just be like, oh, you have all these tools. So I'm sure you're like, we're like, let's let me therapy myself here. But, you know, I'm you can kind of tell me how you felt about this emotional roller coaster and how you dealt with that, because I think it's important that people know that it's okay to need help and that it's normal to feel like this is a lot to take on. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good question. And, and like I said, like, just, I had a lot of tools. I just had a lot of modalities, you know, but it was when you're in it, you're in it. And so again, part of the reason I blogged everything was to help people not go through such a long journey as we had to go through and also not to feel alone. And, um, and yeah, this is, it's, you know, I wrote, I wrote this like in a word, if I had to explain it, it's just so grueling. It's really grueling. Um, there's so much time and effort that just goes into the research of it. Um, and it really does impact you in every life category. I talk about this too, like socially, sexually, um, emotionally, financially, spiritually. I know there's more there that I'm not even thinking of, but it really does rock you in just about every life category. So it's, um, and it is a very, I mean, there's a lot of, there is so much loss and grief. I mean, it's a disenfranchised grief, like meaning it just doesn't get a lot of attention because there's not a real spotlight on this situation. It's a really unique situation. Um, And because insurance doesn't identify it as a real medical condition and insurances don't cover it, it just kind of perpetuates a cycle of, of shame and silently suffering through it. Um, Which is really sad because um, it is real pain and real grief. Um, And I think, I think you definitely, I mean, so, so the things that I would suggest to do is to definitely have your support system. I think, getting a therapist or even an infertility coach is pretty crucial because for a long time, and my husband is a therapist, I should say. So like for a long time, I was really stubborn about going to therapy because I was like, no, I have the tools and and not even that, but I was just exhausted. I was like, I'm working full time. I'm just, infertility is more than a full-time job because I feel like when you add on the emotional stress that takes so much energy. So I felt, you know, feels like you're working two full-time jobs sometimes with just infertility. So like, I just was like, I don't have the energy or capacity to research a good therapist. You know, like I just didn't want to add more to my plate, but after, and even just every embryo, um, just every cycle, um, egg retrieval, sorry, every egg retrieval. I mean, that was three, every egg retrieval that resulted in zero embryos. I mean, that was just as hard as a failed, as a miscarriage or a failed transfer for me. 
everyone is different, but it was, you put so much emphasis, so much time. It's really hard. And it's also, um, it's, it's just, like I said, it's a really unique grief too. And sorry, I feel like I'm, I have so much to say on this. I'm all over the place, but I'll just say this really quick. Being a hospice social worker, working with families that um, know their loved one is going to die. And so often I would see like, um, it's called anticipatory grief, right? You know, your loved one's going to die and they're sicker than a dog and you know, it's going to happen soon. And then they'll kind of bounce back and have a few good days. So it is this emotional roller coaster, right? Where you're like, okay, maybe I have more time with them and okay. And then they sink back down and you're like devastated again. And you are so exhausted from the highs and lows of this emotion And in some ways, it's anticipatory grief, just talking about death here for a second, um, is more stressful than the death itself. And I'm not trying to minimize anyone losing someone because it's just horrific, but but there's closure, right? Like you're like, they're gone. I now have to, you know, you never stop grieving them, but you kind of have to like figure out how to move on. There's this, there's a degree of closure. And then with, you know, them bouncing back and coming back, like you're not, you're so stressed from that. And that's similar to infertility in that you have these highs of like, Oh, I got 18 eggs, you know? And then you have the low of like zero, you know, I have zero normal embryos or like, I don't, you know, just all the highs and lows and the stress that comes with, with, with your body even adapting to the, to the highs and the lows. And, and then there's this weight, this emotional weight of kind of, um, like, how would I say, um, it's just really exhausting. It just takes a toll on you. And, and sometimes at some points for me, I was like, I just wish I, I just wish I knew, like, just tell me you're never going to have your own kids and I'll move on to adoption or egg donor. Like just, I just wish I knew. Cause that the stress of not knowing and hoping and trying and trying not to be too hopeful, but being hopeful enough that you're not putting out negative energy and stress and impacting, like there's just so much stress around it. So I think really having a good support system and I think this is what I was trying to circle back to is like uh, my husband was a therapist and I kind of, I don't know, I guess when you're a therapist, you have a lot of therapist friends. So I had a lot of therapist friends. I had my husband and I was like, I'm good. I have a good support system. My mom was always who I would go to like, but it comes to a point where I really do recommend some, a non-biased person outside of your, you know, have your social support and your family. That's good. But to have someone else that's like non-biased and someone who is not in your immediate circle that you can really go to is crucial. And I think having, whether it's a fertility coach or a therapist, making sure that they have infertility experience is huge because it's a language. You have to learn this language and no one knows the language until you've gone through it. So having someone having gone through it, gone through it and is trained in it, um, I, that would kind of be my suggestion. Um, did you have one? Did you have a therapist during this? Did you end up getting a therapist or a coach? What yeah. did you end up doing? Yeah. 
I got to the point after loss after loss, I think especially after the second failed transfer. And I was just like, and my husband all along was like, you should, you should be in therapy. And I was like, Oh, I can't, it's just too much. And after that, and there was a lot of like, my mom was super ill. Like there's so many things. It was just such a dark time in my life. So yeah, I went through, I got a therapist who had some background in it and I got an infertility coach and I went to groups. I did everything. <laughs> I did everything. Cause I was like, I, you know, I didn't want, it's not that I had pride, but it was like, I just, yeah, I think there was, I guess there was a level of pride, but I kind of just was like, was like, no, I don't have the time and energy. And I don't think I really need it. That was my mindset for a long time. And then I think once all that happened and I started blogging and it was just like, no, I, I need the help. I definitely need the help. Nothing I've been trained on. is going to help. Like I, you need the support after so much trauma and so much loss. So yeah, I just want other people to feel like they're not alone and that you're not overreacting if you need help and support. It's like I said, it's so normal. And I would think it would be abnormal if you were not struggling through this. I think that's where the problem, that's where I would be worried about someone. <laughs> if you weren't having some level of struggle, like, I mean, this is hard stuff. So, yeah. Well, and for me, as someone who is like Olympic level at being able to like push everything down and then just put more stuff on top of it because that's my solution to everything right I'm like ah, oh, stuff it down put more stuff on top of it it'll never come back up it's going to be fine this is a wonderful solution it is not a wonderful solution it is a <laughs> terrible solution it never works but in my mind I always think it's going to work and it doesn't um, but that's I think even for someone like me like it's it's tough it is still like tough all these ups and downs so you know even you know, like I, my first mar miscarriage was in, uh, well, my only miscarriage so far is uh, 2015, but like that, the loss from that, I did not, like, I did not acknowledge because I was like, oh, it's not a big deal. It was early. I was fine. I'm fine. Everything's fine. I'm not worried about it. But it's interesting what comes up over time with some of that, like it, it you know, because you are grieving the loss of someone or someone you thought you would have right because you thought mm -hmm. you would carry that pregnancy to term you thought that you had this whole vision in your brain of what you were going to do and then all of a sudden unexpectedly that all gets taken away from you right mm -hmm. with seemingly without explanation right I mean in in all honesty for me there was no explanation they were just like well it happens like it's very common it happens there was nothing you did try again next time you know and mm -hmm. that was kind of the explanation that I got and mm -hmm. so you so you think that there you don't have to process it you think that you're like oh well it happens and people go through it so let's just not talk about it and move on when I think in reality all of these things it's kind of like you said all of these things for us in this space do matter and we should talk about them and we should shine a light on it and just say hey this is hard. And if you struggle, if these things are coming up for you again, that's okay that they're coming up for you again, because it's, it would be normal. And what society has taught us to how to deal with this is not right at all. Don't bury it. Talk about it so that more people can come out of the darkness and say, oh, hey, me too. 
I I yeah. felt like that too because you know once you kind of out yourself and tell other people that you've experienced this I mean it's so true other people you know you hear this all the time where people will be like oh yeah me too I had a miscarriage you're like oh I never knew that about you oh yeah I just never <laughs> talked about it like all of a sudden you meet three or four people who are like oh yeah me too I went through this I just never said anything and like mm. what a terrible thing to go through all alone by yourself with like yeah. no one else to lean on you know and even throughout this process I think that's why this whole like Instagram infertility community is such a big thing I had no idea it existed until like last mm -hmm. year I don't even know how it came up I like I don't know if somehow I came across a hashtag or something. oh I, I think it maybe I was following um Dr. Amy Egg Whisperer because I found her podcast right and then so I was on there and I think I happened to be following her and I think I was going through some of her posts and then I went through some of the comments and I kind of looked at you know, some of the different accounts who had commented. And I was like, oh my gosh. And that's just this rabbit hole of, you know, <laughs> Instagram <laughs> thing that you go down, right? And you're like, oh, wait, totally. this is your story. Oh my gosh, you and, oh, you know, and then I found all these people had all these experiences to share. And I was like, wait, I don't have to do this by myself. Like, because otherwise I was by myself. I knew one other person who did IVF, but she and I weren't very close and so we we didn't have big conversations about it and we were both somewhat guarded so yeah. it's not like we we're like oh let's spill all of our feelings because I think she was still in the thick of it too and so yeah. I don't know that she was fully open to have that conversation at that time and so I didn't know any of this stuff and once I kind of jumped into this little like Instagram community I was like oh my gosh there's a ton of people talking about this, but there's also a ton of people who aren't talking about it still. Cause I mean, obviously if in our everyday lives, this is not a conversation that comes up. We still, we need to keep talking about it. Like we need to keep making this more of a normal conversation. So there's no shame in asking for help. So there's, there's no shame mm -hmm. in feeling like you're struggling when you're going through this because it's really freaking hard. And if, yeah. You know, you're going through this, no, not knowing that everyone else is going through a similar thing, then, I mean, of course, you're going to feel alone. Of course, you're going to feel some shame around not getting help. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I like, too, what you were saying about, um, you know, like, the effects sometimes of, like, stuffing things down. And I think one thing is, like, your griefs kind of add on to each other, even if it's like subconscious. So if you kind of stuff things down and don't deal with it, basically you're going to have to end up dealing it in one way or another. Right. So like if you stuff things down and don't deal with it, your next loss, your next hit is going to be amplified because you have these other, these griefs kind of build up on each other, not with everyone, but I often see that. And I've even seen it with myself. Like, so, um, you know, if you haven't really dealt with a miscarriage and you have a second miscarriage, like that's, you know, and you're still not dealing with that, it's going to come out in different ways. Like maybe you're just like so angry at your spouse and there's just so much contention between you guys and you're not, you know, it's coming out in anger or something like because it's too hard to cry about it or, or you know, that crying takes so much energy. So a lot of people, you know, a lot of their emotions come out in different ways um, as opposed to what the real emotion is underneath a, 
underneath it all. Um, but it eventually like it comes out and that, I mean, that's why you see so many people with addictions and, you know, they, they lean to other things cause it's, it's an easier fix of, of, um, distraction or numbing themselves to the pain because it is hard to dig deep and to go through it and to talk I mean it's a brave thing to go talk to someone to a therapist or a coach but I think it's it's necessary to to just kind of get you through this because with infertility there there are no guarantees and it and you want to come sometimes the hits just keep coming so you want to stay on top of them if you can and I think another thing I would suggest is just to be like really clear with yourself um, and what your limits and your boundaries are. Like, I mean, we always talk about not going to baby showers if it's going to be triggering, but kind of have the plan in your head before like, um, like, oh, this is going to be a tough friend for me to go to lunch with because she's just had her third baby or whatever. And like, just kind of be like, um, if I go, just do the scenarios before you do it. If I go, how will I feel? If I cancel on her, how will I feel? If I ghost her, how will I feel? If I just text her and say, hey, I'm not in a good place. Like, I'm so triggered by a baby announcement. Like, how will you feel in each scenario? Um, and your emotional health is, like, number one. Because if your emotional health is, I mean that's going to ripple effect into your ultimate goals, right? Like you want to be in a health, the healthiest place to have a baby or to get pregnant or whatever your goals are. And if you're not having these real conversations about what your limits are, um, cause your depression, your mental health, it's going to impact. I mean, I believe our mental health and physical bodies are so linked. So, um, of course, I don't buy into just de-stress yourself and you'll get pregnant. Obviously, that one I don't buy into, but there is a lot of there's a lot of mind body stuff. So and a lot of evidence of that. But I just think being clear about what your boundaries are and and not to feel shame or guilt about um you know, not going to a baby shower or 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 things like that, but just know your limits and how how it's going to be best for you to approach situations before they come up. Mm -hmm. I think that's so important to say because not that anybody needs our permission for anything, you know, but I think really giving yourself the permission to say, you know what, I just can't, I'm not going to, because I think Mm -hmm. we so much, you know, like if a friend has a baby shower, because, you know, baby showers is one that comes up for most people. Like if we say, we want to be that good friend we want to be that supportive friend and we don't want them to feel bad because it's hard on us but at the same point in time I think we do that so often with a miscarriage I know for me when I talk about it I can sense when people get really uncomfortable so I shut it down I'm like no 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 no. it was early I'm fine everything's okay as opposed to what I should be doing is talking about it and just being like yeah it really sucks and yeah it's really hard because then that conversation promotes, you know, more conversations about, oh, my gosh, I had a friend who had a miscarriage also is really struggling. This is normal. It's OK for you to feel this way. Don't feel like you're taking it harder than someone else. You know what I mean? And then I think the other thing that was important that you said, too, was um, like for me, I was, you know, kind of like you said, I was super angry. So I was like angry at like everything. It's like angry at work. I was angry at like 
the people at work. I was angry about every situation at work. And I was talking to my therapist about it and I was talking to them. I'm like, you know what? I'm so angry right now and I just don't even know why. I know this is off. I know it's off. I know I'm angry. And I was talking about these things. I'm like, it's so unfair that I'm 40 and I'm going through this and I don't have a lot of eggs. And I don't have good egg quality and it's so unfair that insurance doesn't cover this. It's so unfair that I was just like, Ur! I was just so much pent up aggression about this whole thing. And then I was like, you know, I just want, I just want like three embryos. Can't I just have three normal embryos? That's all I want. Like, I'm not asking for very much. Like, that's not fair. Why can't we just, and then she's like, do you know what's happening right now? <laughs> and I was like, I'm mad. That's what's happening. This is all unfair. This is stupid. And she's like, you are like grieving and I was like no I'm angry <laughs> like I'm pissed that's what I am and then she was like no you just like went through like you just described to me like three stages of grief and I was like what and she's like yeah let's talk about it and I was like oh my gosh and no idea that mm-hmm. that's what was actually happening because I just was what I thought I was feeling was anger and resentment toward the system right as a whole because I'm like the system let me down and I'm like this is just so unfair nobody told me nobody you know and so she's like oh like stop for a second like I think we really need to talk about this and I was like oh okay and like I had I had to really process the fact that Oh, I, I'm actually grieving right now, and I'm grieving this whole thing. That I'm grieving the fact that I have to go through this. And if that happened to me, and I had no clue that I was grieving, I'm certain one other person <laughs> out there <laughs> is yeah. doing something similar, where they're experiencing some type of feeling that they know is like off. Something's off. Like I'm just not feeling right. I'm not feeling good. Something's not quite right. Oh, maybe this is a sign of grief and I'm I you know it's like you say in your own self you can't see it but someone else who's looking and kind of processing all this stuff that you're having they're like hey wait a minute you know and so then that kind of led me to give myself a little break doesn't mean I'm not still angry I'm still angry (laughs) you know I'm still mad at the whole process I'm still mad at everything but at least I'm looking at it through a different lens um you know, I'm, I'm like, okay, this is kind of my way of expressing grief. But I think the reality is, you know, I, I think it's so important that you as a therapist who kind of knows if you were, you know, a therapist for someone going through this and then having been through it yourself, you're like, whoa, this is something that is really hard and it's okay and it's easy for me to say that, but I don't have the training or resources to truly say this is yeah. what you're feeling. But I think it's so important that we tell everybody that it's, you know, that this is part of the process, that it's really, really difficult. Um, and in saying that, you know, it sounds like to you, would you say the most difficult thing for you was this emotional roller coaster? Or what do you think was the most difficult thing for you? Yeah, I think. Definitely that, definitely the emotional roller coaster. And, and I think this setup of unfair expectations of, of, you know, thinking this was going to be easy. This was going to be quick. I was going to get what I wanted. Um, 
I think I got to the place where my biggest struggle was because I, I get fixated on things and I was, you know, I'm going to get married. I'm going to have kids. I'm going to have my own kids. And, um, like having kind of that shift in thinking of like, okay, this, this might not happen. This might not happen. And this was never anything I ever considered would not happen in my life. Um, and so my objective was really like, how do I get to a place where I'm happy no matter what this result is? Cause I, I mean, you know, like I hate when people say happiness is a choice, but in some ways it's true. Like, um, being single so long, I traveled a lot and <laughs> going to third world countries. Like you see people that have very little and they're happy. Like I knew that it was possible for me to be happy no matter what happened, but it would have to be partly a choice and just a lot of work, right. To get there and a lot of shifts in the way I was thinking and my expectations and, um, and, you know, yeah, we might do egg donor or we would go into adoption. And I think I, I just needed to get to this place. Um, and I don't think you ever just get there and sit there. Like, I think it's a process and it might be an ongoing process. And I think that's okay. But at least be on that road of really getting to a place where I could be okay, no matter what, and grieve what my ideal was, my ideal situation was. And doesn't mean like, I won't, wouldn't always have some lingering sadness about that too. Like, I don't think grief is like you, you know, if I, I liken it to a death, like you never stop grieving that person, right? Um, grief doesn't just end, but just to get to a place where I could, you know, feel like I could be okay and happy despite how this looks. Cause I really have, you know, I really realized I could do everything I could do within my power but in the end, I have no control. Like there's only so much and it was going to be what it was going to be. Um, and so I think that that's kind of what my objective was. And that's kind of where therapy and groups and all of that and the infertility coaching, um, you know, really helped me with that in just getting to trying to be on the, be on the path to get to that. Um, I didn't expect, like I went into that third transfer, not expecting anything. I thought this could happen. This could not happen. Like when you have so many, you really, part of grieving is, you know, you protect your heart. Um, when you've had so many losses and hits, like you try to protect your heart. So I didn't go in with a lot of expectation and and again, even throughout the pregnancy, I was like, well, this isn't really real. <laughs> mm. This isn't happening. Like, this is good. When's it, you know, and as the pregnancy progressed, I was able to relax more. But it was just like, what's, when am I going to lose this pregnancy? And I had to really do a lot of work of like, no, be in the moment. Like, yeah, it's going to be what it's going to be. And um, enjoy it. Enjoy enjoy it for now um and where you are day to day and um I think it was really hard for me in the process to enjoy life I think a lot of times we put things we're just like I can't be happy until this or this or I can't relax and so it's really hard when you're in it and going through it to continue to live mm -hmm. <laughs> and to mm -hmm. breathe and to be mm -hmm. happy and I think like 
having goals you can achieve is really, is also a really good um, tip, like that helped me too, is just like, because kind of your, your ego kind of, not your ego, maybe more like your self-esteem gets kind of crushed, even though it shouldn't, like it's out of our control. But when you get hit after hit and loss after loss, it does something to you. Um, and I think when you have like achievable goals where you're like, I know I can reach this, like, even if it's a planning a trip to the beach or whatever, like, I know I'm going to go, I know it's probably gonna be a good day, like just achievable things to like, make you realize, like, or have goals or things, you know, even if it's like a house project, like things you can finish, achieve, and that are measurable are good for your psyche and your self esteem. And I think whatever that is, big or small, you should have that as you're going through this process or else you're just going to feel like my life is just a bunch of dark losses, something to kind of um, even that out. Mm -hmm. And what do you think was the best thing you did for yourself during this journey? Like, what do you think was the most helpful thing? Um, That's a good question. And I think I really think going going into therapy, um, my, um, my coach, my infertility coach was awesome. Um, she did a lot of, she did EFT, which is like, sounds weird, but it's tapping. It's called emotionally focused therapy and it's good for kind of like trauma and getting your mind body centered. So it's, um, um, yeah, that was something that I think felt weird to tap in different spots in your face, but it's like, it's acupressure. So it's where acupuncture spots would be anyway, or your needles. So I think that was kind of good to like, be like, you're alive, you're present, be in your mind and your body. Like, so yeah, I think getting, getting those kind of tools and techniques in place were probably the best thing that I could do and having goals and having different things that I could achieve. Um, that's probably what helped me the most, I think. And how do you how do you know when you have the right therapist for you or the right infertility coach? Like, how did you find them? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I think for um, how did I find? I mean, I know you can go like resolve.org has a lot of um, resources. If you're trying to find a therapist that's covered with your insurance, which, of course, we were since nothing else is covered with insurance, it seemed. Um, you can go like I know psychology today, there's you can go, you can do go on the search bar for different things like you could put in infertility. And like I said, I would highly recommend finding someone that's been through it or knows the language. And, um, and so that is how I found my therapist. And then just from the community, I think I, I happened upon my infertility coach, Naomi, who's awesome. And I'm like blanking on her name right now. Cause I want to like, I would send everyone to her because she just was amazing. Um, oh, embrace fertility. That's what she is. That's her. Um, but I think, yeah. And I think I also, I did a few consult, like I, I don't know, word of mouth, meaning in the infertility community, I think I asked around or just would notice infertility coaches come up and then I would like research them. Um, but yeah, I found Naomi through embrace fertility and, um, she does that technique, that tapping technique that I just thought it's a technique that I think would kind of expedite working through trauma, which I would suggest. And I would suggest her. She's, she's amazing as far as like, you know, she's in England too and works remotely with people. So, 
Um, so yeah, that's how I found her. And then the group, I think I found them just from researching like groups in Northern California, I think. And I cannot even remember the group, but I can always send that to you later. Utility IQ is another resource that I loved going through it. I think you have to pay a subscription for it now, but I think they have a lot of resources too. But for free resources, I'd probably do resolve.org and like psychology today. So what's next for you? What are you doing now? Um, well, we're probably, we have one more embryo. So like probably in about a year, we'll look about, look at transferring that and do autoimmune stuff, restart autoimmune stuff again, retest, see where we're at with that. Whatever happens, if we have another child, that would be incredible. If not, if that embryo doesn't take, I mean, I, you know, we look at adoption or other things, but but yeah, I think that's kind of... And is that the expectation a year from having your uh, child, you're able, you can do the next transfer? Is that what the recommendation is? Do you know? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think there's a couple of factors that play into it, but um, I think we're more looking at like like time, like timing wise for us and financially for us kind of thing. Like I think, um, and with my age, I you know, I just don't think I have an ener- the energy to be a 50-year-old mom. I mean, some do. <laughs> Bless them. I just don't. Um, but yeah, like just to have them not too far apart, but not too, not too far apart and not too close together where I would like lose my mind or something. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> totally. Um, so how can people connect with you if they have additional questions or if they have like, you know, if they want to connect with you and ask you questions about your um, therapy in Mexico or, you know, some of the other things that you kind of talked about today, how can they connect with you? Yeah, they can um, through my Instagram account, which is um, infertile therapist and therapy. So infertile underscore therapist underscore in therapy, I think. There's another underscore there (laughs) in underscore therapy. Um, Yeah, so they, yeah, anyone can connect with me there and message me any questions. I'm really happy to help. I mean, that's my whole point in doing it. Well, oh my gosh, we covered so much ground. Thank you so much for sharing your journey today. And thank you so much for sharing all your wonderful tips and advice that you've learned along the way. I know it's not over for you yet, but I think that... um, all these tools and stuff that you've picked up along the way will be so helpful to so many people. So thank you so very much for sharing all of that. Oh, of course. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, hopefully you'll give us an update um, at some point when you're ready to start the next step and we can reconnect and kind of see what things are going on, if anything's changed and then kind of what other new tips you learned. Cause one thing we didn't talk about today, but we'll talk about offline maybe is, uh, medications and kind of some money saving (laughs) tips and tools you had for that so yeah yeah, so we'll have to do another we'll have to do another uh talk about that or you and I will talk offline a little bit and I'll drop some tidbits (laughs) here yeah or anyone can ask me or you can you can throw the info out yeah yeah happy to do that yeah, but I would love to connect again, see how things are going uh, before yeah. um, your next one or even, you know, during your next one, you can hopefully see what new tips you have for us. So thank you so much for being here. Thank yeah. you for spending your afternoon with me. I'm so, so grateful. And we will talk again soon. Of course. Thank you so much. 
I want to thank you for tuning in today. I hope you found today's episode helpful. If you want a question or topic covered in future episodes, please feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at 40 and infertile. Make sure you hit the subscribe button for alerts and new episodes, and I hope to see you back again soon. Bye.